press secretary and myself, the prime minister and president, as we're prepping them to go out to the Rose Garden for a press conference. That was a pretty head spinning moment. It's one of those things where I literally had to say to myself, act like you've been here, kid, even though I was thinking the whole time, holy crow, I can't believe I'm here. Um, Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by my favorite scholar, um, maybe my only scholar, if I have scholars, the Honorable Chris Sands. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Scotty. Although I, I think I'm your maybe your favorite American one. There are so many Canadian scholars that we know and like. Well, we do. I'm really excited. Um, so we're going to start off our conversation with a very interesting, serious, funny a uh, political genius in Canada, the Honorable Scott Reed. So welcome, Scott Reed. <laughs> Thanks very much. I am not a scholar. I'm not honorable. There's just almost nothing about your introduction that uh, is accurate, but I am thrilled to be here. <laughs> <laughs> well, for that reason, we'll have Chris introduce you properly. Well, Scotty, we have a great guest today. As you said, Scott Reed, um, who worked on uh, the book with Faith and Goodwill, um, has a great background. He's a principal and co-founder of Feshik Reed and is a communications professional who comes to us with more than 20 years of experience in the design and execution of pub private and public sector communication strategies. His background is in politics. From 1993 to 2006, uh, Scott served in a variety of senior roles in the federal government, including as senior advisor and director of communications to Prime Minister Paul Martin. Uh, hope to get him to talk a little bit about the Prime Minister uh, in, in today's interview. He also serves as an on-air political analyst for CTV News, as a contributor on News Talk 1010 AM in Toronto, writes on politics for cbc.ca, iPolitics and McLean's, and is part of the Hurley Burley podcast. So uh, he knows uh, he knows what he's doing. Scott, welcome. So Scott, I'd like to start out with a question about our collaboration to you just for the benefit of our listeners. And then I'm going to turn most of this over to Chris Sands because I'm a little conflicted because I collaborated with you. And when I say I collaborated with you and Art, I really wrote on your coattails. I mean, let's let's be honest about this. But yeah, we, not true. we worked on a book and now in its second edition called With Faith and Goodwill, it's about presidents and prime ministers throughout history from Canada to the United States. And I think the right place to start is you worked for a prime minister of Canada, the, the right honorable Paul Martin. And can, how did that start? Like, what's the origin story of you getting to work with Paul Martin in the first place? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I don't have an origin story. I'm not uh, Batman or um, or even interesting. But I I was at Queen's University as a student and the general election of 1988 occurred. I'd always loved politics. I'd always been consumed by politics as a matter of personal interest. I was an um, you know, I was a mutant uh, as like a high school student. I was, you know, the guy that was kind of curious about what was going on in parliament and politics all the time. And so when I was in university and, and a, a general election happened, I just wandered into the liberal campaign office and said, I'm down at Queens uh, University here in Kingston. I'd like to volunteer for the local campaign. I did. That sort of plugged me in to a rolling network of stuff. And the way it works in Canada is that you get campus clubs that have accreditation. They're recognized as formal units of an organized political party. So the Conservative Party of Canada has campus clubs at, say, Queen's University. The Liberal Party of Canada has a campus club at 
uh, Queens University or U of T or whatever have you. And they're kind of prized little possessions for political parties. So when it comes to party organization, when it comes to party leaderships in particular, they get a certain set number of delegates. Uh, they have a certain set number of votes. At that point, one third of all delegates to a federal leadership had to be youth, had to be under the age of, uh, I think it was 25. And so that makes those little oases of student groups and student uh, clubs very, very high value. And so... Um, because there was a general election, I, you know, found myself within a year interested in the federal leadership. Paul Martin was running against Jean Chrétien. Jean Chrétien was the overwhelming front runner, went on to win, went on to become prime minister. But that's how it started out. I started out at, you know, like a bunch of, uh, bunch of senior party organizers were looking for fresh timber in these student clubs. They found me as kind of, you know, a naughty piece of pine uh, laying there at Queens. And I got involved, got involved with Paul Martin's first leadership in 1990. That then cascaded into getting involved at Queens Park in Ontario uh, for the provincial liberals, then back with the federal liberals, then went to work for Mr. Chrétien in Ottawa as part of pre-campaign in 1992-93. And then again, uh, working for Mr. Martin in while he was finance minister and then prime minister. That's probably a much longer answer than you were interested in hearing. Um, I didn't talk at all about, uh, you know, any of my personal uh, experiences. So I at least left you a spare to that. But that was it. You know, I just got involved as a campus kind of political nerd activist. Well, that's cool to hear. And that's a big difference, actually, between how it works in the U.S. and Canada. So let's fast forward. I'm going to ask you one thing. In, the, in our book, we talk about presidents and prime ministers, and there's actually a great photo of you in the Oval Office. Uh, I wonder if you'll just share with us, maybe your since since we're a Canada US um, podcast, what's your favorite memory? Or can you pick out uh, a memory that you like from your time in the prime minister's office having to do with the US or the White House? Yeah, I have two. Um, and they're very different. I mean, I, the one you've kind of circled already, and that was just you know, uh, the experience and the awe of entering the Oval Office, you know, and kid from Prince Edward County, find myself working in politics, find myself working for the Prime Minister of Canada. And next thing you know, we're being hosted and, you know, they roll out all the red carpet and all that kind of stuff. So when we're at the White House. We have a, a lunch with the president, the vice president, uh, secretary of state and a whole variety of senior cabinet uh, members. And so it's a big it's a big event. Then we're in the Oval Office, you know, with the president. And I find myself with, you know, uh, essentially just the president's press secretary and myself and the prime minister and president as we're prepping them to go out the Rose Garden for a press conference. That was a pretty head spinning moment. It's one of those things where I literally had to say to myself, ignore your settings or you will fail in your professional obligation to do what you're supposed to do right now. Right. Like act like you've been here, kid, even though I was thinking the whole time. Holy crow! I can't believe I'm here. Um, so that was obviously a kind of a um, a fascinating moment, and I had a lot of fun. and And as part of that meeting, uh, Condoleezza Rice was there, so we find ourselves like in you know the president had to leave the Oval Office. We find ourselves in the Oval Office with Condoleezza Rice. I start you know cracking jokes with her about her favorite sports teams, and like, you know there's a fun photo of me making her laugh. It all so wonderful memories on that. But if I wanted to be honest about my favorite memory of Canada U.S. relations, it happened with me sitting in sitting in Ottawa, sitting in our offices, because one of the things that came out of that actual meeting when we were in the Oval was a determination that we would essentially pursue a political 
uh, level of engagement on softwood lumber, which had been a longstanding irritant. And it comes and goes as an irritant between our two countries, obviously. And, you know, the president of the United States basically turned to the prime minister and said, well, why in hell can't we fix this? How could this possibly be on the can of mortals? And let's let's see if we can steer it around all of the vested interests and just try to take it to a pure political level. Your chief of staff works with my chief of staff. Just start up a dialogue. Our chief of staff is a fellow named Tim Murphy. And Tim started dealing with his counterpart. And it was, um, it was, you know, months later when, you know, I'm sitting in Tim's office and he's on the phone with the president's chief of staff and there's a breakthrough moment. And we realized we're going to get duties to come down in that almost sidebar kitchen cabinet process of let's just dialogue at the political level because as political staffers, as distinct from the public service and from the foreign service, as political staffers, we talk a certain kind of language and we have a certain vested set of interests that are shared, right? We all got to get reelected, whether that's in, you know, Texas or whether that's in Quebec. And so that, that was, I thought that was a, a, a tremendously exciting time because I watched the ability to advance on a file, to move the yardsticks and to achieve some success. And it, it happened just because you build up that interpersonal relationship that comes from meeting face-to-face, -face, that comes from talking formally. And it's not your first conversation. It's not your second conversation. The seventh, eighth, ninth conversation, you, you know, that kind of, that comfort kicks in. And then you can have those kinds of processes. And the next thing you know, you can achieve progress. That's incredible, Scott, and I and I think a real insight. Um, what we sometimes talk about in the in the boring world of political science is that the the unique factor of president and prime minister is that they are sovereign co-equals, and the U.S. bet a lot, basically from the beginning of the 20th century, on the management of Canada's relations with separate sovereignties, leaving all the asymmetries of of size and wealth aside, that we would treat Canada as a sovereign equal. Now. We wanted to do that to pry Canada away from Great Britain uh, a little bit and make you think of, of yourselves as a, as a country. But what, what do you think the consequence of that is, that, that sense of equality? Is that real or is that something that only works in a poli-sci textbook? Uh, you know, person to person, do the president and the prime minister have a rapport that, you know, is a kind of functional equivalence or equality that allows them to do business? You know, it's such an interesting question because I... I um... I may be giving the wrong answer, but my uh, my my answer is what I think I uh, I honestly witnessed, and my impression is that it is equal and it isn't, and I think it would be a grave mistake, particularly on the part of the Canadian government, to misinterpret the parts that aren't equal. And you're equal in the sense that there's an equalizing effect. You go to G7s, you go to international summits, you're all treated as heads of government, your delegations are treated as effectively the same from a protocol standpoint, from a treatment standpoint. Um, you go to the White House, um, it's two heads of government, you're engaging as peers. Um, and that is true. And that, that institutionally is of enormous benefit to Canada because it unleashes processes and mechanisms that permit you to make progress with the largest, overwhelming largest power on, on the planet. Um, so it's a position of privilege. But obviously, you can never forget the fact that um, there is a senior and a junior partner in this relationship in terms of might, whether it's economic, military, whatever, however you want to measure it, that's just the truth of the matter. I think one of the most interesting things about the presidential and prime ministerial relationships is um, when you can when they manage to to 
to, to move past that. I think one of the mistakes that might occur occasionally is, um, is that Canada carries uh, a sense of insecurity into these relations um, that sometimes we will self-censor and check. Oh, well, we're not going to be taken seriously on this issue. So let's not pursue it that way. Or, you know, or, or there's the opposite effect, which is, uh, I think, equally born of insecurity in the sense of, well, my gosh, we're not going to be the mouse. We're going to be the lion where we might get up on our hind legs and scream and, and think that the way we show ourselves to be tall is to bark at the biggest dog. And so I, 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 I think the reality is that institutionally, um, it provides Canada with a, a real sense of, uh, a privileged position in that it gets to engage as equals. Um, but it is up to the skill and the individual confidence and, and the sense that just pure good sense and wit of the individual leaders and the people around them to manage that relationship with effect. Um, because you can't pretend you're equal. Um, but neither can you get so insecure about that relationship that you handicap yourself. Obviously, uh, uh, President and the Prime Minister share uh, a political background, but do you think it has made a difference when the U.S. president has history with Canada? Uh, you think about Bill Clinton and the fact that they had traveled, Bill and Hillary, uh, for a long time in Canada before they became uh, national-level political figures. Uh, go back to somebody like William Howard Taft, who had a summer home in Quebec. Um, do you think that those kinds of connections help or do you think that, that they may kind of uh, offer a president a very narrow view of Canada or maybe too uh, benign a view of Canada? I don't know the answer based on my personal experience um, because Bush wasn't terribly familiar. It wasn't like he'd spent a bunch of time in, in Canada. He didn't have uh, any particular personal affinity. There was no hostility or or absence of, of an, uh, interest there, but it just that didn't exist. The the function of working on this book, uh, the opportunity was that Scotty gave me um, to work on this book and go through the the histories of these working relationships between leaders, leads me to believe, though, um, that it is an advantage when there's when, when there's a standing relationship between the president of the United States and the country of Canada that that precedes the relationship that must occur with whoever the leader of Canada is. Like, I just think that it creates an openness, an additional interest, uh, a sense perhaps of indulgence. I just, you know, and I particularly, you know, I think of FDR and I, I think of, you know, you think of all the strategic issues between Great Britain and Canada and um, that, you know, were shaping us during the war period. Um, but I think that FDR showed, and I think that record demonstrates that he showed a, a lot of indulgence and a lot of patience with Mackenzie King, who I would argue, even though he's our longest serving and, you know, by some measures, our greatest prime minister, King had such an overwhelming inferiority complex and insecurity about his relationship with FDR. How does FDR see me? How am I positioned? Am I on the biggest stage? Am I included in the right conferences and stuff? And I think that if you look at, you know, the relationship that obviously very deep relationship that, that FDR had with Canada, with New Brunswick, it really manifested itself. Um, I think by he, I, I think that to put it as bluntly as I can, I think he put up with a lot of silliness from the likes of King, um, because he had such a soft spot for, um, for Canada. And that probably was helpful. Um, in addition to all the strategic questions. Well, and, and historians usually point to the fact that for World War One and World War Two, 
It was the fighting of the Canadians on the front and the sort of respect that they earned on the battlefield that in some ways made American leaders of a generation like Eisenhower and others look to Canada. And even if the, if the prime minister wasn't the best personality, people respected Canada for all that Canada had, had done in the crunch of the war. So uh, I know Scotty wants to get in there, but I, I just that, that's one of the things I think we're dealing with. We're, we're after the wartime presidents now, and it's a different it's a different dynamic. Can I just add one thing quickly on that? Because I think it's an important point, because I think Canadians often torture themselves, you know, sort of go guardrail to guardrail on whether, you know, are we overestimating how we're seen by Americans or are we underestimating it? I think the World War One effect is was much more influential than than we might give it credit for. And perhaps we even forget a little bit. I think both the personal presence of Borden, I think Borden, we understand we underestimate what an outstanding leader Borden was and the influence he had on his peers and the seriousness with which he was taken. And then, as you say, the fighting that occurred in World War One, we had to do a lot of the hard jobs as Canadian soldiers. And I think that was recognized and seen. And it affected probably 40 years of leaders after that. Well, Scott, just picking up on that for a minute, it seems to me that since the the Great Wars, Canada has really seen itself differently in terms of particularly war and security, right? Canada um, didn't participate in Vietnam. Canada did participate in some other conflicts, including Afghanistan. But the I can remember um, your former boss, Mr. Martin, uh, at an event. You might have been there, actually. We were at the U.S. Ambassador's residence, where I, I used to work for the U.S. Ambassador, and it was somebody's big birthday party. And the, Paul Martin was the Minister of Finance at the time. And he was kind of joking about how he saved a lot of money um, and could spend money on things that Canadians really cared about in Canada because, because of the U.S. you know, being willing to kind of... Um, fight these wars all around the world. It, it seems to me that Canada doesn't uh, feel that its role in the world has to do with um, defense and security so much anymore, that it's different. Is that is that right? I think that's a that's a raw nerve debate in, the, in, in Canada. I think that you will find that um, that you'll get a variety of opinions depending on where people stand politically. But I think, you know, in the let's say from the late 50s through to at minimum, say, Afghanistan, um, I think that there was a sense of, well, we will define ourselves differently. Um, the emergence of Pearson's uh, soft diplomacy of, you know, peacekeeping, I think all of that gave us an alternative definition of what our role might be, the middle power thesis that emerged. And lots of people now criticize that and say, well, that was actually an artifact of history. Perhaps it was illusory at the time. We cling on to that. We end up being free riders. So that debate continues to rage. Um, but what's indisputable is that there have been, um, that there, the military, and obviously Canadians have enormous respect for their armed forces, the women and men of the armed forces, but the, the military fact, anybody who's spent a lot of time in both Canada and the United States, I don't think can objectively dispute the fact that the military fact of life is a much larger fact of life for the, for Americans than it is for Canadians. Just the presence, uh, of, of military personnel. And, and, and so I think, you know, for decades, it was a distinguishing feature and then it manifested itself on at real moments of difference. Um, Vietnam, Iraq, certainly where there was almost a sense of superiority in Canada, which is, this is a bad idea. 
and we won't be part of it and we won't be bullied into being part of it. And then it was as it as it was and as things unfolded, there was almost a dunking on the rim of Iraq by a lot of Canadians saying, see, we've been proven right. We had the independence and the will to say no. Um, and then on a smaller scale, you know, there are other examples and, you know, one that I was involved in with ballistic missile defense and whether or not we would participate in that and where we declined to participate. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a willingness to cut our own stride in Canada, but, you know, collective security is collective security. Uh, so whether it's NORAD, NATO, or, you know, international alliances that pop up on a, on a, on an ad hoc basis, you know, we can't play unless we have some chips already in terms of hardware, personnel, capability. And, you know, that continues to be a hot debate in Canada. Yeah, totally. And gosh, there's so much there I'd love to talk to you about, but um, I've got to restrain myself here. Let's, let's, uh, let's talk about With Faith and Goodwill, this book a little bit. Um, we're going to have Art Milnes on. He's our collaborator uh, for this book. So we'll have him uh, on a future podcast to to talk about it. Um, but maybe you could take our listeners behind the scenes a little bit. Uh, you and I and Art worked together on this, but really it was you and Art. I mean, and and um, various other people helping us to get photographs. But in terms of <laughs> how do you select, you know, maybe talk to us a little bit about, um, you can't put everything in, in a book. Like this wasn't meant to be the comprehensive volume. This, is, this was a presentation of friendship, tensions, um, at work, at play. That's that's what it's meant to look at the Canada-U.S. relationship through um, really the speeches, the interactions, the toasts, um, the trips between presidents and prime ministers. But um, talk to us a little bit about what that was like. How did you make the selections? Were there tough calls where you did include something or didn't include something? Is uh, like t Talk a little bit about that, if you would. Sure. It was a glorious process. I have to say it was a really wonderful process. I, I wasn't and I fishing am... for compliments there, my friend. No, no, no. I remember, it was, no, I remember I mean, negotiating I... with you. You didn't want to do it at first because you were at the cottage on vacation and I had to beg you. <laughs> uh, but anyway, go uh, ahead. I was intimidated. I was intimidated by the exercise and I genuinely was. I'm not, I'm not art. I'm not a historian. I'm not a scholar. Um, and I don't uh, when I put on airs to suggest that I am. So I was, I was conscious of that at the outset of the project and throughout the project. And now that the project's completed, um, I mean, when we talk about it being me and art, it was really art and me. So art comes at it with a, a catalog, comprehensive catalog understanding of these relationships. He has at his fingertips and at the ready, the ability to recite relations, speeches, interactions between political leaders um, in both Canada and the United States at will. So the hard part of making the book was not finding content. The hard part of the book um, wasn't writing the chapters. I think the hard part of the book, the interesting part of the book and the revealing part of the book was writing the table of contents. Like it was deciding how we were going to frame, separate and chunk this thing out. Because there's no point in writing a book that says, well, this has been a lovely relationship without strain or stress at any point in our history. I mean, you have to reflect the times at which there were disagreements and try to put into perspective why those disagreements occurred. And of course, some of them were fundamental and structural. Some of them were, well, we don't want to be part of the Vietnam War. Some of them are trade-related and you have competing interests, um, which goes back to Chris's point about, well, how do you, how do you mitigate, how do you manage uh, competing interests when 
we know darn well. <laughs> yes, the borders were $2 billion a day. But on the other hand, we're not the senior player in that. So, you know, how do you manage that? But some of the differences are also personality differences. And that's kind of, you know, that's fun stuff for a book. I mean, like, why are people going to read the book, right? Well, some of that personal stuff, some of that anecdotal personal stuff is great. I mean, you ask most people what they think about Canada-U.S. relations and the prime ministers and presidents, and it won't take long before someone tells you that story about LBJ grabbing Mike Pearson by the uh, collar um, and uh, sort of scruffing him up a bit. And so you wanted to reflect all of that. So I think, you know, the, 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 the tough decisions were, how are we going to structure this book? And an immediate early decision, and maybe I'm boring people with editorial insight, but an immediate early decision was we won't structure it chronologically. Like it, it, it roughly is chronological, but we won't be held to a chronological construction because, you know, if we feel obligated to talk as much about the relationship between Canada and the United States in 1890 as we did in 1990, it probably wasn't going to be terribly captivating for a ton of people. Um, so you need all that because there are interesting things about those relationships that need to be rediscovered and remembered and that inform what follows. Um, but if it's just a chronological recitation, that's unimaginative, uninspired, and probably not terribly insightful for the reader. But building it around things like you said, Scotty, where we started, we sort of hammered on them. Well, what are the dimensions of the relationship at work, at play? You know, how do we allow ourselves to show when there were moments of great cooperation at war and when there were moments of real tension? And, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's, that was, uh, I think, a really important part of, of creating the book and trying to make it a little more interesting. The final thing I'll say, and I swear to goodness, I'll stop talking. We created this sort of section about friendships fundamentally, like friendships and toasts. And so gave ourselves permission to jam in there a bunch of like smaller things weren't big formalized, you know, uh, addressing a joint session of Congress, but toasts that were given and um, eulogies that were delivered. And some of those, I think, are the richest bits of content because it's where... Um, it's where you really see the personal relationship arise. You see what a prime minister chooses when they have uh, three minutes uh, to recognize a visiting president, what they want to say about them, what personal blush they want to put on it, what priority do they bring to the top? That's stuff. I thought that stuff is, is, is brilliant. And so, and people might look at the book and go, well, gosh, there's too much Brian Mulroney. Well, you can go fly a kite because if you're going to cut out some of the eulogies, you know, you know, Brian Mulroney gave a eulogy to Nancy Reagan, Ronald Reagan, George W, George H. W. Bush. Like those things are affecting. And they are an enormous part of, you know, this fascinating tapestry between our two countries. So I'm really glad we found a way to create. We gave ourselves permission to create that chunk because I think those little snippets uh, are where there's some real, re real rich material. I think so, too, Scott. And Chris, I have to tell you, uh, you know. Uh, people will make make their own judgments about if there was too much of somebody, not enough of somebody else. Um, but. In one of Art's original outlines for the first edition, there was so much Richard Nixon. I thought I was going to like. <laughs> I was glad you were going to say you know, that. I was going to say this. I mean, I think Art. He loves Nixon. He loves Nixon. And, you know, when we were building what was the new embassy in Ottawa at the time, when, when I was up there, uh, Ambassador Giffen and I were looking at quotes that we could carve into, you know, the fourth floor. There are four sides of that kind of dome. And and I was researching um, great Canada-U.S. quotes, wanted to do something different. And 
gosh darn it, Richard Nixon has the best quotes about Canada, U.S. And I was not going to, you know, engrave those <laughs> in the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa. But but, you know, 20 years later, art comes along. And what I so there is a little bit of Nixon in there. Uh, what's interesting is in the pictures, um, there is a picture of a trip where Pierre Elliott Trudeau is introducing um, his kids to Richard Nixon. And, and, and so there's a picture of um, Justin Trudeau as a baby uh, in the White House. And then, of course, there are also these glorious images of Prime Minister Trudeau uh, on his state visit uh, with President Obama all those years later. So it does it does have that sort of historical sweep. And the pictures, um, I think, are as fun as the uh, as as the essays and um, and the insights and the speeches themselves. Well, that I'm glad you raised that, and I, I guess I want to add an ask another question of you, Scott. If you if you can speculate a little bit, I mean, I I wonder if you could talk about the Canadian public and the relationship between their prime minister and president, because it strikes me, and maybe this is the outsider, you know, I'm I'm on the wrong side of the border here, but it strikes me that the Canadian public is very mature in their expectations of a prime minister and the U.S. president in that. They can let um, a Stephen Harper um, be civil with a with a, a guy like Barack Obama, obviously popular in Canada. But they can also um, understand Trudeau, uh, Justin Trudeau, holding his fire a little bit and and maintaining a, a polite face when dealing with you know outright rude and crude insults from uh, from Donald Trump. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the role the public has and how they see the friendship or or lack thereof between a president and a prime minister is important to Canada's national interest. Yeah, it's such a fascinating question because I think it, um, it, it it's on the one hand, the public I think is quite mature and sophisticated, much more so than we give them credit for. Um, but also it moves in ebbs and waves. I mean, you know, in our earlier days, um, you know, people talk about anti-Americanism. And, you know, if you want to be really political about it, people have talked about in the last 20, 25 years, they talk about anti-Americanism. Then, of course, you had the Trump presidency. 80%, give or take, of Canadians are like, I'm not for that. So, you know, that's, it has a galvanizing effect on public opinion. But you know, if you really want to talk about anti-Americanism, well, look to the origins of the country, right? You know, where I grew up, the part of the country where I grew up, Prince Edward County, like I had an uncle who signed his letters, UEL, United Empire Loyalists, like back in the 1970s still, okay? So this notion of we will define ourselves in distinction from uh, the United States, and it's it's been a, it's been a prevalent thread. Um, on the other hand, uh, there's no better functioning relationship between two countries in the whole wide world on on, on on any basis. So I I think that's that uh, complexity and sophistication on the part of the public is what explains their ability to say, no, all right, Trudeau, um, whether I like you or not, I'm going to give you high marks for managing you know, the bear trap that must have been negotiating a trade deal with a White House like that and a president of that sort. Um, and, you know, at the same time, uh, applauds almost with glee, sometimes almost with, um, with, 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 with uh, perhaps inappropriate glee, um, the stick to of it, the stick it to themness of, you know, of, uh, Chrétien saying no on Iraq. Um, the sense of, you know, there is a desire 
that emerges from us being the smaller, uh, less powerful partner of, well, we're not going to take a back seat. And so every once in a while, that manifests itself as, well, we'll stand up for ourselves and we'll demonstrate our independence and we're not going to be pushed around. And, um, and, you know, a little, little kind of tone of, you know, we got a little, we got a little superiority complex to go along with our inferiority complex. And so, you know, the public, the public both feeds off of the leaders who set the tone for that. Some leaders play to the uh, anti-American insecurity a bit more. Some play to it less. Some play against it. Mulroney openly campaigned against it and said, "Listen, it's we are we are spiting our nose off, to, uh, cutting our nose off to spite our face." Um, and I think the public the public responds to that, but also the leaders have to respond to the public. And so you you can feel when leaders kind of get the temperature wrong. Um, you know, there was enormous elite pressure. Like I would say almost uniformly pressure, uh, from institutions of government, from thought leaders, from the, certainly from the military, uh, establishment, uh, security and defense establishment in Canada, uh, like in business as well, uh, in, in, uh, in, in, um, the time of Chrétien to participate in the Iraq war. Uh, I can remember the earliest discussions as a finance at the time. I remember the earliest discussions being it's a foregone conclusion that we must participate. Like, like to say no would be aghast. And when it came time for us in the aftermath of having said no to Iraq, when Prime Minister Martin was in office, when it came time for us to examine the question of ballistic missile defense, you know, the brief we got was you're damned lucky you got away with saying no in Iraq. There's no way you can get away with saying BM, no to BMD on top of it. And of course, then when we engaged at the political level, we discovered that actually they didn't think that it was quite nearly so um, so fundamental. They didn't take it personally. Um, there was none of this us and them Bush White House stuff that our officials briefed us on. It just it was it was an, an illusion, I think, of the Canada desk. Well, I, I don't know about that because I was I remember the ballistic missile defense uh, question and, and I'm still mad about it. <laughs> um, but it but but I think um, I, I think part of what happens is when Canada chooses to go a different direction, which is absolutely it's right to do. And it has done, as you've outlined, there are other consequences. So, it, it you know, the, the current today example is, you know, has to do with AUKUS and the Quad. And the, these are, these are U.S. defense and security agreements with Australia and Japan, um, and the U.K., or, you know, that don't involve France, um, and Canada and things. And so, and, and then Canada's mad about it. Well, you, you know, you, you can't, you really can't have it both ways. Um, uh, you can say no, but then there, but then if you're not at the table, you're not at the table and don't complain. Uh, I, I, I think that's, that's fair, but there's also, I think a need, um, I, I think one of the things it's interesting in, in its relations, I mean, bilateral relations consume so much more time of a prime minister schedule than, than folks know, than the public would know, right? Uh, in general, foreign affairs consume much more of a prime minister schedule than people are, are conscious of. Um, and a large portion of anything that's not domestic affairs is, uh, is U.S. bilateral relationship. I still think, you know, and our, obviously our, you know, foreign affairs and our, um, ambassadorial network, I mean, it's outstanding, professionalized and outstanding. I do think, there becomes almost a group think though um that doesn't allow um prime ministers to get as quite sharply discerning 
brief as they ought to, because um, there's such an assumption of power dynamic. I think by our own officials that are engaging with the United States. And so on the question of BMD, I'm going to continue to differ with you, Scotty, because my, my interpretation of that was we had, and when I mean discernment, I mean literally discernment. I think that we were, we were presented with a brief that elevated the issue of BMD to something that was co-equal in terms of significance to the American administration as the war in Iraq. And they were not. They simply were not. And when we said no to BMD, Wolfenson's response to us was, hey, you know what? We <laughs> You got politics, man. We recognize it. That's not something that makes sense for you now. The door remains open if you wish to reengage later at a time when either it's of interest to you or it's politically manageable or whatever have you, then that door is open. And on he moved to other topics. And so I think sometimes when your whole life and your whole focus uh, as a cross-border official, is those six files that are alive and burning. Sometimes there's a, an inability to discern, well, how are these being evaluated politically? So we need to know which ones are going to really jeopardize our relationship on Five Eyes, and we need to know which ones are not, um, because prime ministers can't always make that judgment call on their own, because the brief they get often is everything is a four-alarm fire, and you'd better act accordingly. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I think now, and we're, we're coming to a close of this and we're so grateful. I, I think now, and this is the subject of whole other discussions, uh, the big question today is how how is Canada relevant to the United States and to the world on questions of China, Russian aggression, things like that. And Canada has a lot to say about that. And, you know, We'll talk about critical minerals and rare earths and all that. That's a, that's a whole other discussion. Well, while we're talking about other discussions, Scott, I want to give the last word to you. You you have a fabulous podcast uh, with your collaborators, the Hurley Burley. Uh, it's on Canadian politics. It's absolutely a must listen uh, for people that follow Canadian politics. Our um, little project here that Chris and I have, Canusa Street, is about Canada-U.S. relations, and so. Um, my last question to you is, since you are a podcast aficionado, um, if you could, if you could propose any topics for us and any guests for us on Canusa Street, you get to be our, our executive producer for a day. Who would you like to hear from? Because we'll, we'll spend the next, you know, however long it takes chasing down some, somebody that maybe isn't right for the hurly burly because it's not in your wheelhouse, but something that, that you think you'd like to hear from, from us. What would that be? I'd like to hear from two places that are quite distinct. So the political hack in me wants to hear from Kamala Harris or somebody else that you can identify, Scotty, who I cannot, that coming from my per particular political lens can provide me with some insight as to what in hell is going on with the Democratic Party and how it's going to mount some kind of compelling rebuttal. I assume the midterms are going to be a bath for the Democrats in the Biden White House. And so I sort of say to myself, what is what is the response to, um, you know, the, the Trumps and the DeSantis? Like, where is this going and how is there what is the coherent Democratic response? Because I don't see one as a political observer north of the border who has an enormous vested interest in what happens uh, in the United States. And a big part of my frustration is that I don't, I don't see a coherent democratic response to it. So I hope to God there's some governor you guys can put on who's like, a, you know, like not on our radar screen now, but is like just built out of pure political talent. And we can all go, holy crow, thank goodness. So I'd like to hear from that. And I would like to actually then the second one, very different. Um, 
I, I worry, and the, and even the exercise of working on this book reminds me that I'm worried about distorted notions I have of the Canada-U.S. relationship because I am Canadian. And, you know, this kind of like, when am I fooling myself into thinking that we matter too little to them? And when am I fooling myself into thinking we matter too much to them? So you touched on it, you know, precious metals, the metals of the future, the, you know, what, what is, um, what is the truth of all that? And, and and like, I want somebody who can put that stuff really into perspective and sort of says, you know, what is the, what's the, uh, the continental relationship, uh, uh, you know, sort of between Canada and the United States from an economic standpoint, what can it be built on for the next 35 years? Um, and how does that reconcile with uh, the climate crisis and all the other things that we're going that we have no choice but to deal with? So that's a much more policy intensive discussion. But I don't know what to believe. You know, like I'm like anybody else. I pick up the newspaper and you hear this person and that person saying, "Oh my God, America can't believe it. They're trumpeting the opportunity to work with us." You know, the uh, um, the Ring of Fire is going to get built because it's so vital to the f- uh, future of what's going to power the n- economy. But I don't know if that's true or that's just rhetoric. And so I'd love to hear from somebody that can put it in genuine perspective. Okay, well, those are two great, two two great uh, thoughts. And and um, Chris, we'll work on that. I mean, the future of the Democratic Party at the presidential level may may lie in one of our future guests, the Transportation Secretary, the Canadian Transport Minister, and uh, U.S. Pete, Mayor Mayor Pete Pete Buttigieg mm-hmm. are going to get together pretty soon. And um, the our Secretary Pete. Buttigieg is a star in the party um, and somebody who clearly is on our radar. But um, so so those are two good pro tips. We'll definitely talk about critical minerals. We'll talk about um, all, all kinds of future of Canada, U.S. things. And, and Chris, maybe last word to you. Well, I, I, I want to say more than anything else. Thank you, Scott. It, this is one of those um, really interesting interviews because it's a discussion of reaction to a little bit of history, um, you know, and how Canadians and Americans view the same events um, is often very different. And I think this book project that you and Scotty and, and Art have put together, it, it's its just unique in my experience. Um, it combines that sense of, of history on the big stage and yet Canada as, you know, kind of not just a witness, but a participant um, in that process. And I think it'll be something that that hopefully has a third edition and, and more, although I don't, don't know if we're writing great speeches anymore, but certainly, uh, certainly marks something unique in the literature. And I'm so glad that you... First, you let Scotty convince you to do it. Uh, we couldn't. There's no stopping Scotty. There's no stopping There's Scotty. No saying no to Scotty Greenberg. I think that's very important. As you say, you know, we couldn't get Canada in on Iraq or Vietnam, but Scotty, you cannot say no to her. You can say no to presidents. You can never say no to Scotty. And that's how I feel as well. But thank you. Okay, I think we need to edit all of that out. But anyway, <laughs> um, Scott, thanks so much. We may try to have you back when we when we when we have Art Mills back. We're you know we're talking about this book project, which he's done so many phenomenal books on and lectures on Canada U.S. relations, and it was such a privilege to work with him. So we'll get him on the podcast if it works out for your schedule, Scott. We'll bring you back. But um, thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, thank you guys. It was a real privilege. Okay, Chris, well, thank you for indulging me uh, bringing my good friend Scott Reed onto our podcast. He's so smart. He's so funny. And um, it was such a pleasure and a privilege 
to work with Art Milnes and Scott Reed on with Faith and Goodwill, which, by the way, the book's not out yet. It it's printed, but we haven't launched it. So um, this is a this is a fun little uh, preview, uh, an amuse bouche for people before they get the book. Well, I think it's going to make a lot of people want to go out and get the book because it. It's an aspect of the Canada-U.S. relationship that is hard to really understand unless you connect with people who are there. And what Scott Reed did for us today is really give us a sense of the the staffer who gets to the Oval Office, the way in which these the sort of human chemistry of politicians makes history uh, in the biggest level. And so much of our Canada-U.S. relationship comes down to those personal relationships. Um, I just thought this was a fascinating episode and it was terrific that Scott had time for us. That's exactly right. And, you know, he a lot of Canadians will know him from his commentary on the various networks, from what he's doing with his podcast, with his collaborators. Um, And and I got to know him as a staffer, uh, which was which was terrific. So really great to have such a talent with us on the podcast and to get his ideas for the future. So I'm going to start working on getting Mayor Pete on onto this just as a thank you to Scott Reed. What do you think? I, I think that would be fantastic. Um, if we can start bringing cabinet level folks in early, maybe uh, maybe we can make a difference for Canada-US relations by drawing them out on, uh, on this important relationship. Amen, brother. Great to see you as always. Great to see you too, Scotty. Thanks. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.